morning, everybody, and happy Palm Sunday. For those of you that I didn't have a chance to greet, whose names I may not know, my, my name is Doug DeMint, and I'm the lead pastor here, and we're so thankful you're here. I just want to add one element to Pastor Mark's announcement, and that is if there are some of you that are attending the second service today, the first service, there's a little bit more room, and if you would like next week to come to the first service, you might find it, it easier to park. It's the same service, the same spirit is there. It means you have to get up two hours earlier, which could be a deciding issue for some of you, but, but uh, just wanted you to know that that's available. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and this morning for the next few minutes, I want to talk about the contrasts of Jesus' triumphal entry, some of the things that were taking place in the periphery that were affecting the, the personality of the community of Jerusalem and things of that time. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Would you stand with me as I read the Scripture this morning? As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside the street, tied at the doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the colt? And they answered, Jesus, uh, they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Heavenly Father, as we approach this morning, we ask that there would be that same spirit of worship and anticipation of you and what you're going to do in our lives today as there was of those that were anticipating you coming and changing their lives and their culture. I pray, O God, that on this day when we begin to celebrate some of the history that has led us to the salvation that we now know, that we would recognize that you always had a plan and your plan includes us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. There was a pastor that told a story about his mother-in-law that was driving out of a parking lot, and this, it was a very stormy day. The rain was pounding so hard that she could barely see, and, and there was a car that was driving past the drive, and so she jumped in right behind it thinking that if I can just keep the person's taillights in sight, I will at least know where the road is going. And so she was right on the tail of this person and followed them, and, and it seemed as if suddenly the individual stops, turns off his lights, and she was getting ready to lay on her horn to find out why in the world they stopped in the middle of the road when the individual jumped out and ran and knocked on the window. And she rolls her window down just a little bit. And and she said, why did you stop in the middle of the road? He goes, why did you follow me all the way into my driveway? (laughs) If you're going to follow somebody closely, you might want to know where they're going. As we approach Holy Week, we look at it through the lens of Scripture and we see that Jerusalem was about to become an epicenter, a confluence of powers and ideologies and religions and traditions and passions. 
And the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus is one of contrasts. There were so many different things that were taking place on opposite ends of the spectrum that in order for us to fully understand everything that was happening, we need to look at this through the, the lens of some of the contrasts. In fact, Palm Sunday is really a collision of themes that was taking place. We have the story of the king who came on a lowly donkey, who came as a servant wearing the clothes of the poor and humble. Jesus, who came not to conquer as earthly kings come to conquer, but who came to conquer as a result of his love and his grace and his mercy and through his own sacrifice for his people. He's not a kingdom of armies. He's not a kingdom of modern weaponry. He doesn't come intimidating, but he comes in humility and servanthood. He doesn't come to conquer nations or to take over land values or land mass. He, he comes to win the hearts and the minds of individuals. And so the message that he came to bring that day is, I come to let you know that you can have peace with God through me. And I want you to have an invitation today to, and to take a look at some of the collisions, three of the collisions of themes that took place on what we know as Palm Sunday. And if you have a bulletin, there's an outline of those for you there. But the three collisions I would like to examine for just a few moments are the collisions of privacy and praise, the collision of politics and passion, and the collision of plot versus prophecy. The first is the collision of privacy and praise. For those of you who love to study Scripture you will recognize that as you followed the pathway of Jesus, that many of the miracles that he did, he gave some very unique instructions to those for whom he had performed the miracles. And he told them things like, keep this quiet. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 29, it says Jesus was followed by two blind men, and they were asking to be healed. And he says this, according to your faith... It will be done to you. And their sight was restored. And then there's this really interesting line in Scripture. Jesus warned them sternly. See that nobody knows about this. Now, I don't know how you would react if Jesus, who had just brought sight to your blind eyes, told you sternly. I, I wonder what Jesus was like when he talked sternly. So help me. If you let anybody know that you can see, like, what are they going to do? But very clearly, there was an aspect of his work that he wanted to do privately. We find out in Mark chapter 1, verses 41 through 44, that Jesus heals a man of leprosy. And following that, he says this to him, see that you tell nobody about this. Don't tell anyone. Again, you have a man that had been in disease who now is healed and he can't say anything to anybody. In Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 43, we have this account of this leader named Jairus whose daughter had died in the bedroom and when Jesus was summoned, he goes to the house and he clears the house out, makes everybody go outside and he goes into the room of this little girl with just a couple of people and he raises her from the dead and then he says this, and he gave strict orders... Not to let anybody know about this. There was this sense of the Lord wanting to do some of the things in private. And I begin to look at this and I'm going, why? 
Why would Jesus do these things and want it held and so that it was private? And we find in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, that we get a clue when he says, Instead, one of the individuals that he healed went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news, and that says this, As a result... Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. In other words, as Jesus is encountering lives and he's bringing healing to different people's needs, he recognizes that if they openly talk about this, that the people that will pursue him will pursue him for the wrong reasons. They will pursue him for what he can do for them, and they will never hear the message that he has come to bring the love of the Father through him. And so he's so worried of the crowds that come for the wrong reasons that there's this collision of privacy and public praise that takes place on this day and the Palm Sunday. If you were to look at what had just taken place before he comes to Jerusalem, you would have seen that Jesus does a miracle of the raising of Lazarus, and he does this in a totally different way than he had done others. Jesus, recognizing that his time is coming, became very public. In fact, when he walks into the cemetery and Mary and Martha are crying, he prays out loud. He doesn't make everybody leave, but he says, Heavenly Father, I come to you and I'm praying out loud so that everybody around me can hear. And so this collision takes place of things that he had done in private in the past. He now publicly says, it's time for people to know who I am. And with a loud voice he prays and everybody is listening. You could hear a pin drop in that cemetery as he finished praying and he says, I do this because I want people to know that I've been approved of you so they can now know who I am and what my purpose is. And then he yells at a dead man and brings him out of a grave. So the personality of Jerusalem at this time has brought people to a place where they're following him because of the miracles that he's done. And as a result of that, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the chief priests were ticked off at what Jesus was doing. In fact, if you turn to John chapter 11, you read these words. In verses 45 through 48, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary... And had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And I love this question. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miracles and signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, they begin to recognize he has a power that we don't have. And so the old established traditions and the old established religions are no longer fulfilling people's needs and they're dropping them like crazy to follow the one true God in Jesus who there are miraculous signs that are indicating he's come from the Father. This collision takes place of privacy versus praise. And so as this is now taking place, we read in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 41. Jesus, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, these could have been this very same men that had come in contact with those whose miracles had been done and were told not to say anything. And Jesus at this time says, The collision has taken place. It's time for public praise. And he says, I tell you, if they don't praise me, the rocks will cry out praise to me. In this season of privacy versus praise, it was time to begin to release the praise to the one who has come in the name of the Lord. Here's how this relates to us this morning. There are some of you that are really, really comfortable in living your life of faith in privacy. You declare privately that you are a follower of Christ. You hold your faith as something that this is mine and, and I'm uncomfortable talking to other people about it. I believe that we are entering a day and age when the Lord is saying no longer can what he's done within our life be held private, but that we need to stand up and become proclaimers of the living God because if you in your privacy harbor a sense of shame of Jesus, he says, if you're afraid or ashamed of me now, I will be ashamed of you before the Father. And so in your collision of privacy versus praise, let me encourage you, let it out and praise the name of Jesus. Secondly within this was a collision of politics and passion. In the book, The Last Days, Marcus Borg and John Crossan describe how there were actually two processions that were taking place on this Palm Sunday. There was a military procession that was coming in the west gate of Jerusalem that was led by the Roman governor, Pilate. He was the ruler of the area of Edomea and Judea and Samaria. And when he came in, he was coming in at the front of a cavalry. He was coming in with a tremendous parade. He was there as a demonstration of imperial power, but also coming in the demonstration of imperial theology. It was a standard practice at this particular time, whenever the Jews were holding feasts, that the Romans would bring in more and more soldiers just to stand as an intimidation factor and also to let them know we're not going to let you guys get out of hand with this worship thing. And so they came, and according to their theology, the Romans' theology, the emperor was not just the ruler of Rome, but was a son of God. And so for Rome's Jewish subjects... Pilate's procession coming in the east side of Jerusalem embodied not only a rival social order, but it also embodied a rival theology to what they believed. And so while this parade is coming through on the west side that was meant to intimidate, they came through on horses and foot soldiers with leather armor and helmets and weapons and banners and gold eagles mounted on poles and sun glinting on the metal and gold and the sound of those horses and troops as they came through that the people standing on the side of the road would see it as they hear the clinks of bridles and the beating of drums and the marching in order. All of it there to intimidate and tell us exactly who's got the power here. And then in the eastern gate... On the other side of Jerusalem, there was another parade that was taking place. Jesus was entering there, and he's riding on a donkey, and he didn't come in the name of Rome, he came in the name of the Lord. And he stood out with the values that he 
uh, was proclaiming that was in contrast to Roman values. Jesus came committed to service and humility. He came in the opposite gate to proclaim an opposite peace, one that is not worn won by intimidation, but one that is won individually within the hearts and minds of those who would believe in him. And he came in the name of justice. Unfortunately, as we read the scripture, we recognize this clash of politics that was going on here and the passion of Jesus. We know that most of the people that were waving palms before the Lord and celebrating his arrival were lavishing this praise on him because they had the wrong reasons of why they thought he was coming. You see, their desire was that he would come as a messianic deliverer. Someone who would lead them in a revolt against Rome. And if a man can stand in a graveyard and pray and bring somebody out of the grave who'd been dead four days, then there is no army that can stand against him. And that was their hope in all of this. There were many in that celebration that day that did not believe in him as Lord and Savior. And as a result of that, within days of, of praising him and worshiping him as he came in, they stepped back in such bitter disappointment that they also cried crucified him when he didn't do what they wanted him to do. And so in this clash, this collision of politics and passion, Jesus comes in on the opposite gate from them and declares a different rule. A third collision that took place that day was the collision of plot versus prophecy. I believe the Gospels for a number of reasons. But very high up on that list of the reasons that I believe the Word of God is because of the diverse and testable prophecies that have been fulfilled in and through the life of Jesus Christ. In spite of impossible odds... Jesus was born just when he should come, and he was there to do everything that he needed to do. Daniel had predicted 530 years before his birth that Jesus would come, and he knew that he would be here on this day and come in as as an awaiting king and fulfilled the prophecy. The chances of that happening without Jesus being fully God and fully directed by God are impossible. But the gospel writers on Palm Sunday focused on another prophecy. They focused on the prophecy of Zechariah, who in chapter 9, verse 9, they said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Now, this fulfillment that the gospel writers proclaimed did not impress everybody. Because there were people out there who felt that Jesus was merely trying to humanly fulfill prophecy and that it was all a plot. There was a conspiracy mindedness among some. And they declared that Jesus is just knowing old prophecy and he's trying to be somebody that he's not. And he's just trying to play a part. Those that believe the whole story of Jesus is just a plot also thought that he had read the prophecies of Zechariah and that it was just coincidence that he he put a colt out there where it needed to be so that it could be taken to him. And they looked at this not through the eyes of belief, but through the eyes of skepticism. Does that not sound like our world today looking at Jesus that views him through the eyes of skepticism? There will be people that will come to church next Sunday that will do it out of tradition, but will look at Jesus with skepticism. 
In fact, this plot view of Christ went so far that after he was crucified and buried in the grave, those who thought it was all just a plot said, in order to keep him from continuing to do this, we need to seal the tomb and put guards there so that nobody steals his body and then claims that he rose from the dead. So there's this mindset of cynicism and a collision that takes place through all of this of plot versus prophecy. But let me read you the rest of the prophecy that's found in Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 12. And I'm going to be reading this from the New Living Translation because I believe that it captures it a little more accurately. Rejoice, O people of Zion, and shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. The things that jump out to me, number one, are in verse 9 when we see that Jesus coming in as a triumphant rider into Jerusalem fulfills the prophecy exactly how it's supposed to be. In verse 10 it says that his rule will extend To the ends of the earth. Now I want you to look at that through the lens of what we are seeing today and through this holy week. Today, in every nation of the world, there are people that are gathered in churches worshiping the name of Jesus who has come in the name of the Lord. Prophecy has been fulfilled in that there's not a nation in this world that does not have people today that are declaring, He comes and He's come for me. Hallelujah to the name of our Jesus Christ. In verse 11 it says that God will seal a covenant with blood such as that the prisoners of death will be free. Now let me tell you something. You know who these prisoners of death are, don't you? It's us. We're the prisoners of death. Because before Christ comes into your life and before you yield yourself to him, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You weren't struggling. You weren't trying to hold on. You were dead. Prisoners of death. And by the sealing of his blood that we will talk about next week, and the resurrection of his death, we have been set free from the pit of death to rule with him this was written 2500 years ago he was telling us that somebody was going to come and free us from this prison sealed with his blood Jesus literally fulfilled the scripture in his life Those that thought it was a plot or still look at it with cynicism. I want you to know that this was not the desperate plot of a pitiful man. 
This was the key to a providential program which literally transforms us from death to life and allows us to have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life where we can spend eternity worshiping the King of Kings and giving Him the honor that He is due, not in privacy, but with loud voices of praise at the throne of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come this morning. Our ushers are going to begin to distribute to you palms. We are going to stand up and we're going to wave those in praise as we sing this morning. Today is a day of celebration. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who's been slain. Our King comes in the name of the Lord. So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to ask the ushers to come in. They're going to have to pass those out, and I know that we may get done with this song before everybody gets one. We had handed them out earlier, but somebody would have put an eye out. Begin to distribute those, and as you get it, let's wave it before the Lord as we sing.